Before we look into God's word together this morning, an announcement concerning our church plant in Homestead. Several months ago, we asked all of you to stand and join hands in all of our services on the weekend, praying for a breakthrough in acquiring a property. This week, we signed a sales agreement for a permanent home for our Homestead Church plant. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory. The property we're purchasing is the very first property that we thought about purchasing over a year ago. It has a sanctuary that's ready to go. It's a bit dated, but it's clean, up-to-date, ready to go in terms of its heating, electrical, all the rest. And next door is a large home that can be converted into office space, youth meeting rooms, children's ministry space, and so on. When we first looked at it over a year ago, we felt it would be ideal, but we just felt a check in our spirit. We felt like God wasn't releasing us to purchase that particular property. So we spent the next year looking at over 70 different properties. Nothing seemed to fit. There was one that we put a bid on, somebody outbid us and purchased it. And then about two months ago, our hearts and minds were drawn back to the first property. And we began to look at it again and thought, this, this would serve us very, very well. Now, why did God have us wait a year only to purchase the very first property we had looked at? Because when we first looked at it, the asking price was $375,000. We paid $250,000 for it. I'd say 125 grand is worth the wait. And that difference in price will more than cover, I'm sure, what we need to do to refurbish the home, connect the two buildings, and so on. So when God says go, we should go. When God says, hold your britches, we should hold our britches and wait upon the Lord. All right, now let's get back into our study of Daniel. You and I live in a culture that is increasingly confident and vocal in its rejection of God. And faced with that kind of opposition, we may be tempted to shrink silently into the shadows to avoid further ridicule and rejection. We may be tempted to practice a closeted faith. Worse, worse, we may be tempted to compromise God's unchanging truth. Now, we aren't the first to find ourselves in such a position. Far from it. As we saw the last two weeks, Daniel's three friends were encouraged to compromise in the face of a literal bow or burn ultimatum from King Nebuchadnezzar. And they defied that ultimatum with a declaration that checked all the boxes of a mature faith. They honored God's power, but they allowed room for God's wisdom. Today, in a moment, we're going to read Nebuchadnezzar's declaration as he came face to face with God's power and moved one step closer to the day when he would bow to God's wisdom. 
The declaration from Nebuchadnezzar came after Daniel's friends had been cast into the fiery furnace. It's found in Daniel 3, verses 24 through 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. I'm entitling this weekend's teaching, The Furnace of Decision. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the honor of preaching and teaching your eternal word. And I gladly confess I am not worthy of that honor. I also gladly confess I am not capable of fulfilling my assignment apart from the empowering of your Holy Spirit. So as always, I pray for a fresh infilling from your Spirit for this hour, and I pray that your Spirit would fall fresh on each of us, helping us to hear what you would say to each of us today, individually and collectively, and then helping us to put it into application. We always pray these things for your honor in the church, for the welfare of your people, and for sake of the mission that you have assigned us to. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And as we listen for God's voice this morning, may the Lord be with you. You don't have to read the Bible very long before you discover that God is a missionary God. He wants all men everywhere to come to faith and repentance. And because of that, when God performs a dramatic miracle, he doesn't do it to show off. He does it to show lost people the way home. And the account of Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar's eventual response to their deliverance affirms that. It reminds us why you and I need to resist any and every temptation to compromise God's truth. Because this story demonstrates that confident faith can make confident unbelief rethink its confidence. 
And Nebuchadnezzar was about to learn that firsthand. Earlier, by way of a dream that had been confidently interpreted by Daniel, God had attempted to humble the arrogant ruler and show him the error of his ways. He made it clear that Nebuchadnezzar had been placed in his office by God and that his tenure was limited. There would be other empires after his. Now, it's safe to assume that Nebuchadnezzar found that revelation a bit unnerving and troubling. You see, when you build your whole sense of identity and your whole sense of security and worth on a position, and God tells you there's an expiration date on that position, well, that's a bit unnerving. And perhaps that's why Nebuchadnezzar built that massive statue and called everybody to bow before it. When unbelief feels threatened, it often seeks to reassure itself. It erects monuments to its false hopes. It doubles down on its empty boasts. It applauds its imaginary progress. It mocks its opponents. It attacks the word of God that makes it feel uncomfortable. It declares victories it hasn't won and will never win. And if you listen with discernment, you'll hear all of that happening in our culture right now. But God still desires that his opponents would come to repentance and become part of his family. So those who seek to deny God often find that their denials set them up for new demonstrations of God's power. Now that's something else Nebuchadnezzar was about to learn firsthand. Confronted by the news that his reign had an expiration date, he soon found himself facing something even worse. Not only was his tenure limited, so was his power. Because he couldn't force three young Jewish exiles to bow to him even at the threat of death. Now the king's fiery anger testified to the fact that his encounter with Daniel's friends was eroding his confidence. He was accustomed to unrivaled power. People groveled before Nebuchadnezzar. But now he found himself face to face with the uncomfortable realization he was essentially powerless against three young Jewish exiles. Oh, sure, he could execute them, or so he thought, but it would be a rather hollow victory because he couldn't force them to bow. Their death would seal their denial, and it would deny him what he really, really desired. So when he was confronted by uncompromised confidence in God, the most politically, militarily, and economically powerful man on the face of the earth was reduced to a fit of rage and an expression of impotent frustration. He ordered that the already fiery furnace be made seven times hotter, so hot that it instantly killed his most decorated, valiant warriors as they attempted to throw the three men in. But Nebuchadnezzar 
didn't spend time grieving for his lost friends. He was just happy he had finally silenced those three men who offended him. Or so he thought. Because what he saw next made him leap to his feet in utter amazement. Daniel's three friends weren't incinerated instantly. They were walking around in the furnace. The ropes that had bound them had been burned away, but their clothing was intact. They were intact, and they had company. A fourth person who looked godlike in appearance. Nebuchadnezzar's bad day was getting worse by the minute. You see, just minutes earlier, he had posed a rhetorical question to the heavens. What God could possibly deliver you out of my hands? And now the heavens were answering. The God who is capable of delivering his followers, Nebuchadnezzar, the God to whom your threats mean nothing. Now with that, Nebuchadnezzar called for the men to come out. And he used the pagan Babylonian names he had given them, but he added on the expression, servants of the Most High God. That's significant because Nebuchadnezzar was unwittingly acknowledging that the world cannot destroy the identity of God's people. No matter the names they put on us, no matter what they label us, God's title, servants of the Most High God, remains. See, we can hide our title through compromise, but the world can't destroy the title God has placed upon his people. Now with that, Daniel's friends walked out of the furnace. They didn't run out like scared rabbits trying to escape. They walked out. I like to think they walked out with their best hood strut. <laughs> they weren't busting a sag, but I think they just took their time coming out just to say, and you thought you could destroy us. I imagine their shoulders were back, their chests were out, their steps were confident. And as the men who had sought their death just minutes earlier crowded around them and began to examine them, they saw that they were completely unharmed. Not a hair was singed. Their robes and clothing were not scorched. There was no smell of smoke upon them. And in that moment, as the three men stood there, I suspect that that promise that they had quoted to themselves from Isaiah, the one they likely had in mind when they refused to bow, was ringing in their hearts with a new level of volume. When you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. Now it was no longer a promise, it was a reality, because they had just come through the fire. And in so doing, they left you and me a powerful reminder. The God who can deliver his people from the fire sometimes chooses to deliver them in the fire. Because God knows when we walk through the fire, there are people watching, people he wants to reach. And the bigger the fire, the bigger the viewing audience. God certainly has the power to make a way around the fire. And sometimes he does that. God has the power to extinguish the fire altogether. And sometimes he does that. 
But in his wisdom, he sometimes brings you and I through the fire because the most powerful testimonies are the ones forged in the furnace. As the men stood before that stunned crowd, I suspect they had the sudden realization that all of the real suffering they experienced had been experienced before they were thrown into the fire. I say that because before they were thrown into the fire, I'm sure they were thinking, what's this got to be like? If we die, how painful, how, how quickly, but all the horrific suffering they must have been imagining never got past their imagination. And it's a reminder of something I suspect we often forget. When God's people are under attack, the decision to remain faithful is often harder than the consequences of remaining faithful. Their decision to be thrown in proved to be much harder than the actual experience of being thrown in. And I wanted to point that out because living in a fallen creation has a way of making us pessimists. We find it very easy to assume the worst. So if a temptation is difficult, we assume that the consequences of refusing that temptation will be even more difficult. But while that may be the case on occasion, it isn't always the case. Sometimes the hardest moment proves to be the moment of decision, and after that, things get incredibly easier. But you'll never discover that until you make the decision to remain faithful. All of that to say this, faith is strengthened more by our decisions than by the consequences of those decisions. I want you to read that with me. Faith is strengthened more by our decisions than by the consequences of those decisions. I stress that because we tend to think the exact opposite. We focus on God's answers to prayer, believing that when we experience a miracle, experience a provision, experience a healing, experience deliverance, that strengthens our faith. But when we see the provision, when we see the miracle, we're seeing something that already exists. And Hebrews tells us that faith is the conviction of things what? Unseen. Unseen is when you're making the decision. Seen is after you make the decision and God steps up to the plate. See, we believe our faith is strengthened when we walk out of the furnace intact. The reality is our strength is more strengthened, our faith is more strengthened when we make the decision that we're willing to go into the furnace. It's the decision that grows your faith more than the consequences. Their refusal before the fire strengthened their faith more than their release after and from the fire. The real furnace for them was the furnace of decision. Now, I'd like to suggest that's why God allows his people to face the challenges, the mockery, 
the ridicule, the opposition, and the threats of a corrupt, lost, adversarial culture. I'd like to suggest that's why God puts us in places where we have to make hard decisions. God is the great deliverer, but he won't deliver us from the need to make hard decisions because that's where your faith is forged. That's where your faith is strengthened. That's where your faith grows. If God were to decide everything for us, as some suggest, he would effectively deface his image in us because he is a decision-making God. He would dehumanize us. He would turn us into spiritual robots. Worse, he would deny us the opportunity to grow our faith. And even worse than that, he would deny us the opportunity to demonstrate to a lost world the realities of God that it desperately needs to see. Now, along those lines, I can't help but wonder if some of those officials who just moments earlier had sought the death of Daniel's friends, I wonder if some of them, as they looked at those three men, found themselves wishing that they believed in something that birthed that kind of courage. I have to wonder if there wasn't a little bit of envy going on. And these three dudes, they've got something. I, I don't have anything like that. Uh, there's nothing I'd be willing to die for like they were. See, as much as fallen humanity resists the certainties and the boundaries of God, they still intuitively hunger for certainty and for the boundaries of God, the boundaries of blessing. So more than a tale of three believers miraculously escaping persecution, more than a tale of a God who can work dramatic miracles, I'd like to suggest the story of the fiery furnace is a tale of one man attempting to escape God and God pursuing that man, the man being Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of this chapter, he wasn't yet converted, but boy, he was confused. <laughs> and if you notice, sometimes you've got to get real confused before you get converted. You have to get confused about what's real, what really matters, who you really are. Right? Nebuchadnezzar's idols, his illusion of power, his false hopes were systematically being exposed by God as pretenders. So he came to the point where he was convinced that the God of Daniel's friends was more powerful than any other God. And he made a declaration that if anybody disses these guys' God, the Most High God, I'll have them executed immediately. Okay. But Nebuchadnezzar still wasn't ready to bow and make their God his God. Okay. That would come later. We'll get to that. But the fact that it eventually came the fact that the most powerful man on the face of the earth as the world judges power 
came to the point where he knelt before God and humbly declared his own inefficiency, his own insufficiency, and his need of somebody bigger than him. The fact that he came to that point was influenced in large part by what? By three young men who refused to wilt before the demands of the world. Three young men who chose instead to forge a powerful witness and a powerful testimony in the furnace of decision. Times like ours, cultures like ours, call for believers who will walk in humble but bold, uncompromised, unembarrassed proclamation of God's truth because that proclamation forged in the furnace of decision, strengthened by an increasing faith, is the only hope of lost men and women coming to bow before the God who created them, who wants to give them hope and life and a purpose, the God who died for them that they might live. This past week, right on time in light of my topic, somebody handed me an article from a Christian magazine. And it was talking about the effects of compromise on the core biblical doctrines that the world finds so offensive. And the article listed one denomination and network after another in the United States that has compromised at one point after another, after another, after another, in an attempt to have people think better of them and an attempt to remain relevant and draw people to God. And the irony is, those who have compromised in an attempt to draw people to God are all becoming increasingly irrelevant. Losing members by the millions, decreasing by 50, 60, 70% just in the last five years. Then the second half of the article talked about networks and denominations, and a denomination's just a network. I, I always have to laugh when people say, I hate denominations, and then they join churches that network. That's just labels. You know, we can do more together than we can do separately. Right? So, so a denomination like the one we're part of, it's just a network. 2,000 Alliance churches can do more to spread the gospel of Christ around the world than everybody trying it on their own. But it listed four denominations that have not compromised. The Assemblies of God, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, Nazarene Church, and the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and all of them experiencing double-digit growth and increase. You see, those who compromise in an attempt to win lost people, just as I said last week, effectively say, we don't even believe this stuff, why should you? 
But those who hold fast to the uncompromised word of God provide lost people an alternative. Before we're done with the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar will bow before God. But let me ask you, do you think he would have bowed if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had compromised and bowed before his idol? I think not. I think not. So when you're tempted to compromise the word of God because holding fast to it means you'll be called a hater and phobic and bigoted and intolerant and yada, 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 yada. I wish the world would get some new material. When you're tempted to compromise, remember, standing your ground might mean you go through a furnace. But on the other side, that might mean somebody's got to get through the darkness and into the light of God's gospel. And if you really, really, really love humanity and love people, you'll demonstrate that by loving God, refusing to compromise his truth, going through the furnace, and making a way for the Nebuchadnezzars of our culture to find their way home. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, again, we are daily bombarded with hostility. And that's all right. <laughs> our experience pales in comparison to many of our brothers and sisters around the world. We really have it easy. They're dying. They're being imprisoned. We just have people call us names. In the face of that low-grade opposition, help us to practice high-level devotion. Not arrogance, not boastfulness, not self-righteousness, just a humble refusal to compromise your eternal truth a willingness to make hard decisions, a willingness to go through the furnace if necessary so that people whose hearts are hungry for their God might see him in us, might find him through our demonstrations of faith, might hear him in our testimony, might see him in our experience, and might join us as servants of the Most High God. Lord, by your grace, let compromise be for others, but not for us. In Jesus' name, amen.